Massive disruption typically comes with both needs and opportunities for change. So, under challenging circumstances, how can organizations effectively address change during challenging times? And is it possible to do so while avoiding and addressing the potential for burnout? In this episode, I speak to Robert Bogue, business leader, author, and public speaker, about how organizations can address critical change initiatives with confidence in order to achieve success. Depending upon the way you look at the problem shapes the way you think that you resolve it, and your attempt at a solution changes the problem in ways that are non-reversible. It's just a very interesting aspect of corporate change where we want the simple answers, but unfortunately, they don't always work. Robert Bogue has a driving passion for delivering solutions through both teaching and learning. His drive for resolving problems is fueled by his creativity and innovation to find solutions that others cannot. A business owner and community leader for over 10 years and 17-time Microsoft MVP, he has authored 27 books and edited over 100 additional books. He knows how to ignite engagement, stop from burning out, and freeze a snowballing conflict in its tracks. So, ready to learn more about how confident change management can help your organization meet its goals? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Rob Bogue, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I'm really glad to have you on today to talk a little bit more about a few topics. One, of course, being um, your change management book and course, or your book, Six Keys to Confident Change Management. But also, we'll probably foray a little bit into the space of burnout as well, because I know that's a topic you're passionate about. Yeah. And I am as well. But before we dive into that, uh, let's talk a little bit about what inspired you to write your most recent book, so Six Keys to Confident Change Management, because I think that's definitely a very timely topic given all the disruption in the world today. Yeah, I think, Suda, this is going to sound a little bit like first the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs came, but (laughs) it's it's how you got to get to where you landed, right? And so I started doing technology work a very long time ago, started working with Microsoft SharePoint in about 2000, so prior to its initial release. By about 2007, I had really realized that people weren't using these beautiful technology solutions that we were deploying. Uh, They they just weren't changing their behaviors. And as I, I started to probe that a little bit, I poked it with a stick and people said, well, they're not changing their behaviors because they've not learned how. They've not learned the how to for doing the SharePoint stuff. And I said, okay, so fine. So I published the SharePoint Shepherd's Guide for End Users. And, and it's a book, but it's also something corporations can deploy on their environment to have help in context with video. And so we were doing that back in 2008. But by 2009 or 2010, I'm like, well, but people still aren't changing. And that really started me on this journey. And the journey was, how do you do change management effectively? There's all these models and Levine's got a model and Cotter's got a model and Adkar and blah, 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 all these models. But how do you do it effectively? And so last year I got approached by one of my partners and they said, hey, will you do this change management talk? Because we know you you really know it well. You've been doing all this research. I'm like, yeah, fine. But I got to build a course and I got to build a book. And so that's what did it is I had spent 10, 12 years doing this research on change And I finally had somebody say, okay, it's time. Now is the time that we need to be thinking about how do we change better? 
And so we built the course first. And so the course is big, huge. It's 11 and a half hours of recorded content. It's 800 pages of student handbook. It is the most comprehensive change course anywhere. I'll put it up against anything. It's the most comprehensive thing that I could find. And that was great. But the problem with that is it's such a big commitment. It's such a big commitment to get to that. And most folks are like, hey, I got tapped on the shoulder to manage change better, or I'm trying to cope with this COVID thing or whatever it is. And I need something shorter. That ultimately led to this six keys to confident change management, which is kind of the cliff notes version. It's the summary. It's the, here's how you orient to understanding how to do change well. And, you know, we were pleased it made it to uh, Amazon number one. We were super happy and grateful to see that. And it's been a really good project for me because it's allowed me to put a bow on something that has kind of been cooking and stewing for a decade or a dozen years. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's one of those things that you had mentioned, like now is the right time. Because first of all, of course, we're just moving faster. So there's this immense rapid pace of change that organizations in particular are dealing with to try to keep up with the times, keep ahead of their competitors, making sure that they're thinking about things like the ever-changing landscape of employee retention. So change management is a huge hot topic. And I think one of the barriers that we've seen is people having difficulty modifying their behaviors in order to adapt to rapid change. Is that really what makes this the right time for this change management concept you've put out in the world? I think you've hit it pretty squarely on the head. We, we've got so many things happening. And I think if you look at where we are in history, it's not going to slow down. The rate of change that we're seeing now is just inconceivable a few decades ago. There've been several folks that have said, look, the amount of information that we process in a single year, our grandparents wouldn't have seen in their lifetime. And that's pretty powerful to me because it just means there's so much more going on and that additional content means more change. And we're making these transitions faster and faster and faster. And you see it everywhere, whether it's the adoption of technology or whether it's the retirement of technology. I think, I think one of the things that is very neat about the research that we did is the discovery that people don't resist change. Some of your listeners, and, and you're probably tilting your head going, hey, what do you mean they don't resist change? I get change resistance every single day. There's a guy by the name of William Bridges, and what he said was, they don't resist change. They resist loss. And so whenever you make a change, there is a loss. It could be a big loss or a little loss. And you're like, no, but it's all positive. Yeah, but even the nostalgic things, the way you used to do it is a loss. And so think about it this way. So if, if you want to make popcorn now, oh my gosh, super easy. You take a packet, you throw it in the microwave, or at least the kids throw it in the microwave. It hits the back wall and they press a button. And three and a half minutes later, you have popcorn. Now, I don't know if you remember, but I remember, I remember being a little kid. I'm with my grandma and we're like, She's like, hey, do you want to have popcorn? And I'm like, yeah. And she pulls out this magical device out of her cupboard. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, it's a whirly gig. And I'm like, okay, what does that do? She's like, it helps me make popcorn, right? And so it's this little crank on the top and she pour oil and, and popcorn in it. And so is the popcorn out of the microwave three and a half minutes later an advancement? Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, there are days when I long for just standing in front of the stove with a whirly gig, listening to the 
the kernels swirl. And so you could say, I have no loss when I get popcorn in three and a half minutes instead of whatever it took 15 minutes to get popcorn before. Or you can say, yeah, but I lost that memory. I lost that connection. I lost that continuity to the past. And I think we're missing that, right? We're missing other people because of the isolation that we've got to be in for, for COVID and trying to contain that. We're missing that connection to the past, to other people. And I don't think that we're all really aware of how important it is to all of us. Right. I love that analogy because I think all of us can kind of connect to something, especially in our childhood, that really brought this kind of visceral reaction or emotion and think, wow, this was an amazing time. You can think about the taste of the popcorn back in the whirly gig. You can think about the connection you had with your grandmother. But I think you're right, is that people have these established behaviors, established norms, established emotional connection to the way things used to be. Now, sometimes that could be a little bit different in our workplace, but there's something to it that we need to think pretty heavily around when we're approaching change. Is that change we want better than what we have today? Is it actually giving us more? Does it allow us to better reach our goals, better reach the outcomes that we're seeking? Is moving faster or taking the next flashy technology that's out there the best course of action for our organization? So What's one of the biggest pitfalls that you've seen in organizations that might be chasing the wrong solutions to a bigger problem? So first, I think that the challenge is better to whom? Yeah. Better to whom, right? For the organization, the organization is not a person, right? Like you don't have a relationship with, a, with an organization. People are like, oh, I'm really committed to my organization. And actually, you're committed to your manager. The research says you really like your manager or you really like a team around you. And that's what causes you to stay. And I think when we're talking in an organization, we forget that everybody listens to one radio station. And that radio station is WIIFM. What is in it for me radio? All me, all the time. And I can do it like that as a sort of joke, a little tongue in cheek, and say, it's all me all the time. But the truth is that as humans, we are wired to evaluate our threats and our opportunities personally. The last time you heard about a restructuring or a divestiture or an acquisition, you thought, what does this mean to me? Am I losing my job? Am I getting more stuff I've got to get done? Is it more stress? Is it, what is it for me? And then from there, once you've satisfied that, then you can spread. And I think when we talk about this from the point of view of how do organizations get tripped up on change, they forget that they have to make the change message work for every person or most people. They say, well, we're going to return, you know, 3.7 more cents per share, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Bob and accounting doesn't care. And Susie and logistics totally, totally doesn't matter. That's another thing that we found was understanding that you have to make the messages personal so that you can get the behaviors you want, the, the personal change you want, back to your original point, how do you get the personal change that you want to drive to the organizational change that you want? And that means messaging to an individual person or at least a group of people. And I think that's the biggest problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a very important point because you see a lot of organizations take the mindset or the approach that I need to get my people on board. They need to follow along. They need to get on the train. They need to be aligned with the goals from leadership or the organization. But the reality is, is that that connection they're going to have 
with the effort, the goal of the organization or of the manager or of the department or what have you really does depend on their personal connection or their personal investment into that goal. So if that's something that's important to them, great. But if you don't bring them into how you're going to achieve that goal, then you could actually be alienating some of these people that could actually eventually start working against what you're trying to achieve. I think that we historically, and and historically a hundred years ago, we had a different relationship with the organizations that employed us. For the most part, we had this organization that was going to take care of us and we took care of the organization and then all sort of work. And around about the 1980s, 1990s, we started to see mergers and acquisitions and layoffs and this instability in the relationship between the organization and the employee. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It's just a change, right? And the result of that is our trust in society and particularly in our organizations has plummeted. And because of that, we can't lean on that trust in the same way that we used to be able to. We used to be able to say, well, I don't really understand what the organization is doing. I really don't understand how this helps me, but I trust IBM as an organization and I trust my manager and I trust the leader and I trust. So I'm just going to defer. I'm going to let it be okay. And I'm going to move on. But we don't have that anymore. Trust is at an all-time low. And that's one of the reasons why building trust inside of your organization and getting employees and partners to believe that you have their best interests at heart and and that you will behave in a way that is supportive of them. That is so missing and critical and needs to be developed. You know, some organizations are getting that and others aren't. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, that mindset of employment definitely has evolved over time. Back in the day, of course, you'd look to have a job and stay at that job for your career. And that was really the goal. That was the expectation to some extent. Over time, of course, that's waned. Now we're looking at new generations entering the workforce, but also, again, this just rapid pace of change. And people are more likely to change jobs more often every two to three years in some instances. And I think that's one of the things that organizations start to think about. So that dynamic that I mentioned before about employee retention becomes really, really important when you go after these big audacious goals in relation to change and how you manage that change and how you bring your people along on that ride so they feel like not only are they contributing to that path, but they are personally invested in it and it helps them display their strengths and feel confident and feel a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, and we all want that. Yes, sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. People's sense of purpose is not always going to align to their work, but it's certainly much easier to get there if you feel like what I'm doing is appreciated. My viewpoints are valid and wanted, and I'm a part of this thing that I'm working together with other people to achieve. And there's some there's some magic in that. There's definitely some magic in that. So, of course, Simon Sinek and Start With Why, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, you know, Rob, there are some organizations where the why is really hard to get to. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, well, you know, we have a division in the company that that I'm working with that they do car repossessions. And for those people that don't know, car repossessions has got to be one of the worst jobs on the planet because you show up to somebody's house and from their point of view, you're stealing their car 
you know, and it's a very dangerous job and it's, and it's just a really thankless job because every day you get yelled at and screamed at and cried at. He says, how do you build a why around this thing? It's an essential service. It's an essential thing that happens. And he said, you know, ultimately we landed on this idea that we are a part of a system that allows people to get the transportation that they need to where they want to go. And our role to return cars to inventory and to protect the bank's investment so that they're willing to lend is an essential role to getting people where they need to go. And I'm like, wow, that's super cool. So, so, but even these hard places, there is a way to get to mission. So let me give you another example. And this one's a little closer to us. So inside of a hospital system, there are environmental services workers. These are the janitors. Um, they tend to be lowly paid. They tend to be not well-respected. They tend to be all of these things are just really not recognized. But I can tell you from the research that we did and, and we're, we're trying to better train them so that we reduce hospital-associated infections, if you're in a room where the previous patient had a set of diseases, the smallest, you are 40% more likely to contract that disease in the hospital than had the person in the room prior to you not had them. And you're like, whoa, what does that mean? And it's like, that means a lot of people are getting sick because the room isn't getting cleaned. Most folks, most janitors, most EVS workers don't think about the fact that I'm saving lives. But I can tell you, the data says they are. If they're doing their job right, they're absolutely preventing people from getting sick and dying. Totally different way of thinking about it. Yeah, what an amazing distinction to think about the difference of I am cleaning this bathroom versus when I clean this bathroom well, that means that the next person to use it doesn't get sick. Yeah, they don't get sick or they don't get more sick or they have a better chance of healing and getting better. I mean, that's definitely very mission critical. And when you think about the importance of that, I think that's true of almost any organization. Of course, healthcare is a tremendous example because they are literally saving lives. Other organizations that maybe you're not saving lives per se, but think about what's the important aspect of that outcome. How is that making someone's life better? Whether it be a client, whether it be a customer out in the world, at some point, if you can connect how your part in that bigger picture makes someone's lives better, that is a huge difference in your engagement, uh, your ability to engage in your work or be satisfied in the work that you do versus someone who just thinks about the tasks they're doing. Or, you know, in organizations appreciating employees at all levels, doing all types of work, understanding that their part is critical to the outcomes that the organization is trying to achieve. Yeah. So one of the interesting things, I know I mentioned burnout earlier, and you talked about healthcare. Of course, healthcare is an industry riddled with burnout, facing huge challenges during a global pandemic. A lot of communities in particular reaching capacity at hospitals, doctors, uh, nurses, anyone in healthcare really struggling to keep up with the demand during this pandemic. But when that demand is high, when the pressure is high, and when the potential consequences of your actions are very high as well, of course, that will lead to burnout. And I think one of the things that you can see in other types of organizations as well during this rapid pace of change, if organizations are not successful at bringing people along on the ride, not successful with connecting their personal contributions to the greater good or the outcome they're trying to achieve, 
then you've got a bunch of folks working really hard without feeling appreciated or the benefit of the work that they do. And that's, you know, kind of a ripe environment for burnout. So when you approached this change management course and your change management book, how did you kind of factor in the thought around burnout or did that factor into how you approached uh, your methodology in your book? Well, let me give some context so that this will make sense to listeners. So last year, 2019, my wife and I co-wrote a book for SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management. And the title of the book is Extinguish Burnout, A Practical Guide to Prevention and Recovery. Uh, so we spent a great deal of time with burnout and how does it function and what does it do? And again, because it's sort of like when we do these projects, we do them with a lot of research involved. You know, I'm still reading and writing, reading a book every week and writing a book review on it. And so for burnout, I, I think that people misunderstand it. I think a couple of things, World Health Organization says it's a work-related, occupation-related thing. It's not. We experience it in life. And if you're burnout at home, you will carry it with you to the office and vice versa. There's two models in the book. I'll give you one of them. And it's a bathtub model. And we say that when you have no more personal agency, then you are in burnout. So the bathtub is the container for your personal agency. It's filled by three things, the results you get, the support you get from others, the amount of self-care you do, and it's drained by the demands that are placed on you. And so when we're coaching employers, we'll talk about how do you recognize the results better? You mentioned you know, that recognition that's important. How do you support people well? How do you make sure they've got the right equipment and in healthcare, a lot of that this year has been about getting the right personal protective equipment. How do you encourage and support and engage people in self-care? How do you teach them what it is and how to, how to get them to help? And then on the demand side, we teach folks who are managers to ask what needs to come off the plate or what deadline needs to be moved when you add something new. On a personal level, we tell folks that you have to make sure that what you think a demand is, is actually what it is, because we, we have this tendency to use our own standards where other people's standards may differ. They may be bigger, but in most cases, they have a smaller demand than we do. That all builds around the established criteria for burnout are three things. It's exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy. The problem is, is exhaustion's a red herring. We've all been having the time of our lives. We've all been really enjoying what we do. And at the same time, been exhausted. And so it really is not a good indicator of burnout. The second one is cynicism. Cynicism is interesting because you're not cynical until you believe you cannot change anything. Um, and if you think about the grumpy old man sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair talking to his friends and they're all cynical about stuff, it's because they don't feel like they can change things any longer. What that leaves us with for burnout is this feeling of inefficacy. And I say feeling with emphasis because it is the feeling of inefficacy that matters. It's not actual efficacy. It's not what you are actually getting done. It's how you feel about it. And sometimes with folks, we've got to teach them to accept the results they actually are getting and to be more okay with it. So we walked into the change process knowing all of this about burnout, knowing that burnout is something that's real and it's focused around inefficacy. When you do a change, there's disruption. Disruption means more 
energy and time and less productivity. So how do you help people to understand that that reduced productivity is the right expectation? So when they feel ineffective, they're like, hey, I used to get 100 widgets done a day and now I'm getting 50 widgets a day. This change is supposed to make things better. And you can say, yeah, 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 but this is the trough. This is where our productivity dips. When we're done, when we've learned how to do this, when we've learned a new way to play, then we'll be at, you know, 150 units a day or whatever it is. You know, most people don't realize Tiger Woods, and he's, I know he's fallen out of favor right now, but before he became such a great golfer, he was a good golfer. And then he had a coach and he totally rebuilt the way that he played golf. And like, wait a minute, he was a good golfer. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because it was the only way to get to great. The only path to great was to tear down what he knew. And we forget that when we do change. We forget that in order to get to the end state, we often have to accept a period of reduced productivity. And that, that leads to these feelings of burnout. The Extinguished Burnout website that we built for the book, extinguishedburnout.com, every single resource on it right now is free. Uh, we did that as a part of our commitment to trying to help society deal with this COVID thing. And so the articles, the course, the videos, all that stuff is free. And, and I don't know how long we'll keep it all free, but for the foreseeable future, it's all going to be resources that anybody can go get to and use to try and help themselves stay out of this ugly thing we call burnout. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I definitely encourage folks to go out there and check out those resources. The fact that you've got those out there for folks for free is really important. I know that when I personally experienced burnout a few years back, for almost the first thing I recognized is the lack of resources, meaningful resources that actually helped me get better because I was in all effects sick. I couldn't think clearly. My memory was shot. I had a hard time being effective at work. It was affecting my emotional state, my viewpoint in life. And when I started realizing that there were actual ways for me to get beyond and heal from burnout and had actionable steps I could follow to help pull me out of that place, it made all the difference in the world. You know, you can tell people, you know, they can get over it or we'll take a few day vacation days. None of that works. But the types of resources you're putting out in the world are really things that people can take and action and really send them on a better path. So thank you for that work that you do, because I think that's tremendously important. Yeah, let me let me just interject because you you hit kind of a hot button for me. Everybody says, oh, yeah, take a couple of extra days and take a vacation and blah, blah, blah. And, it, yeah. and you're right. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the core problem is that inefficacy. Yes. Right. And going on a vacation, no matter how great it is, doesn't change your perception that you're making forward progress in life. Yes. It may give you a little bit of relief from the exhaustion, which may slightly improve your mood for a period of time, but it doesn't address the core fundamental issue. And that's hard. Yeah. You know, and if I, if I connect this back to our change conversation, you know, a lot of times organizations want the quick fix for the change. They want the, well, is there five easy steps for this? Because if there's five easy steps, then we can do it. But sometimes these challenges are real, difficult, thorny challenges, even on the order of wicked problems. I don't know if you talked about wicked problems or not, but of course, Riddle originally started talking about them in social planning. And he's got 10 criteria about there's no stopping rule. You, you don't know when you're done. Everybody's definition of the problem is slightly different. And that's what we find in change in large organizations, because depending upon the way you look at the problem, 
shapes the way you think that you resolve it and your attempt at a solution changes the problem in ways that are non-reversible. It's just a very interesting aspect of corporate change where we want the simple answers, but unfortunately, they don't always work. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think sometimes people underestimate the level of complexity that organizations might face and, you know, when they're facing change or, or anything else. But one of the things I think that have always helped me, whether it be, you know, my bout with burnout, with large change initiatives, one of the things that I think always has helped me is to break it down into smaller pieces and start with step one. You know, take that first step. Yep. So if you've got any leader that is overwhelmed by a massive change that's in front of them, what would be a great first step for them to take to put them on the right path towards effective change management? So first of all, we get very, very clear on the end point. A lot of times when we start to change, it's like, oh, we want, we want it to be better around here. Well, that's useless because there's no way, there's no way to make that actionable, right? Well, better around here doesn't cut it. You have to have a hypothesis. You have to have something that you think is going to make a change. And you say, well, um, I'll pick one that's actually a really bad, a bad one, but we're going to move to a more open concept. We're going to move to open offices. That, that I think is going to improve our organization by allowing us to collaborate better because we think collaboration is the thing that we, like I said, it's a bad one because it doesn't work and it, it actually takes us in the wrong direction. But if you can define that endpoint very, very clearly and, and whether you use SWOT or PESTLE or some other mechanism for figuring out exactly what does that endpoint need to look like, then the, the very next step for us is a road mapping exercise. And so what we try and do is we take the current state as we understand it. And, and hopefully we've done some work to really understand that. Most people think, most leaders think, oh, well, I know what the current state is. Um, I'm just going to guarantee you you're wrong and start there. Go learn, be ethnographic about it. If you've not studied how to be ethnographic about your approach, if you, if you think about an anthropologist, how do you go learn what things are really like? But anyway, so, so you get those two pieces. You get your clear endpoint, you get your clear starting point, and then you try and bisect that. And you go, well, to get to open office spaces, we would first want to come up with open common areas. And so we would want to restructure the way that we do our cafeteria so that there are nooks and spaces where people could collaborate and sit and drink coffee. And we want a more Starbucks feel versus an industrial cafeteria. And that's probably a midpoint. If we can, if we do that, then we can get the behaviors. And then you bisect on either side of that. So what does it take for us to get to that kind of coffee atmosphere in the cafeteria? And then on the other side of that, if we've got the coffee house feel in the cafeteria, how do we bring that to the rest of the building? And so, so you keep bisecting until you end up with a set of steps that are not easy, but at least definable, manageable. And as you said, you know, breaking down the problem, getting to feel like I can do this this piece is manageable. And so I'm going to go do this and then I'm going to go do the next piece and so on and so forth. I think that's the way that I would start people out. And in fact, that's the way we start out in the book and in the course is getting very, very clear about the end point, getting very clear about the starting point, and then getting clear about how we break that down into a roadmap with mile markers and milestones so that people can see that both we are making progress in the change, but they're making progress individually as well. 
Yeah, I love that. It seems much more doable that way because I think that's one of the big barriers when you talk about people feeling stuck and not wanting to go forward and do something different. They do fall back on those old, common, already known, comfortable behaviors that don't always help them achieve their goals. And so I think that's a great kind of initial roadmap that's very, um, I guess, bite-sized and and doable for folks to be able to take at least that first step uh, towards that change they're they're looking to achieve. Now, I want to change gears for just a moment, because one of the things I love to ask my guests is, you know, their thoughts about the future. So what's something that might make you concerned about the future? Um, I think COVID has is, is got everybody's attention. And so it's an easy answer. But what what is most concerning to me about it is this perception that we're going to return to normal, that this has not fundamentally altered our way of being. And I know that to be truth. I have a family that's in healthcare. My wife is a board certified pediatric clinical nurse specialist. I have a daughter who's a nurse, a son who's a paramedic. We're in this. And the reality is that we have no mechanism to develop long-term immunity or resistance to the coronavirus as it exists today, based on what we know today. We have to fundamentally think differently and Honestly, I'm concerned, particularly in America, that we're going to do it. Uh, In America, we have this belief that we're rugged individualists, that we're the lone cowboy charging across the plains. And that's just fiction. The truth of the matter is, when people went out to explore the West, they went in wagon trains. Circle the wagons is a literal thing. It's the way that the community came together and worked together to protect each other. I'm worried that we are not taking the cultural changes that this virus has brought to us and taking them to heart and finding ways to connect with people, even though the new world order is different. So that's my biggest area of concern. I just think people think we're going to get over it in a year or two years or whatever it is. It's going to be exactly the way it was. And the past is gone. And, and we should mourn it and we should wish back for those times, but it's gone. Yeah, that's such an important point. I mean, because the reality is we establish behaviors and some, some of those behaviors can take a long time to be established and other behaviors don't take quite as long. But if we look at the trajectory of the pandemic, we've already been in it for the most of a year and we don't see a real end in sight. So we can anticipate that this will be upwards of two years of complete disruption to the way we go about our lives. And I think it would definitely be naive for anyone to think that that's not going to change how we operate on multiple levels because organizations have had to completely shift how they do work um, and sometimes completely shift the types of products and services that they offer to accommodate our new worlds and kind of keep things afloat. I think that also will bring some advantages or some things we can think positively about. I think there's no secret a lot of folks were thinking things weren't working all that well prior to the pandemic. And maybe there's this opportunity for us to start doing some things better because of this massive disruption. So let me ask you what you're optimistic about for the future. I think that we are, as a society, changing, and that always creates opportunity. And I think that we had for a time become more and more focused on entertainment. We had decided that entertainment was the thing that we should be investing in. And I don't want to take anything away from anybody who works in entertainment or hospitality. 
I think that this gives us an opportunity to refocus on things that are productive. I think there are some serious big changes, big concerns that we've largely ignored. We know that our energy usage is not sustainable. And whether you believe in climate change or not, we know that our energy consumption and the way that we consume energy is not sustainable. So I think that this gives people a lot of time to start work on very large problems like that. You know, I'm desperately trying to find somebody who knows anything about residential windmill farms. We've got a lot of trees on our property, so solar is not the best answer for us. And so we're going to have an opportunity to focus on how do we get to net zero energy? And I think if, if other people do that, and I don't think that that's the only cause, right? Like, it's not like, oh my gosh, it's got to be climate change. It's got to be getting to, to sustainable energy usage. It's more of a, we have a capacity to focus on these bigger societal problems and an awareness that we need to. We've known about pandemics for decades, right? I can tell you large global healthcare organizations that are my clients, we had pandemic preparedness conversations decades ago. It's not new, but it's real now. And so I think that allows us to start to think about all of the big picture things and look at what can we do to make them better? Even if we can't fix them, how do we mitigate them better? And I'm actually really hopeful that people will take a renewed interest in things that may not be right in front of their nose. We've had the great benefit of being able to focus time and energy on things like burnout and change. And we have a set of child safety cards to try and reduce the number of kids who end up in pediatric ICUs. As I said, my wife's a board certified pediatric clinical nurse specialist. You know, we, we've had some of those opportunities and I think it's cool that other people are going to have a greater awareness and opportunity to start thinking about those sorts of problems and how do we deal with them as a society. Yeah. And that's where the real positive change will happen, yeah. uh, where we are all able to identify, you know, what our lives could be, what society could be, what our experience could be in the future. And we all contribute to help shape that better future. So yeah. what a great, uh, what a great optimistic message, uh, Rob, for the folks out uh, who might be listening today. His number one Amazon bestseller, Six Keys to Confident Change Management, is out there on Amazon. You can go find that. I'll put a link out in the episode notes. And also, you can enroll in his Confident Change Management course. Rob, where would they find that course? Uh, It's on confidentchangemanagement.com. So obviously, we're going through so much in the world right now. Go out there and check out Rob's Confident Change Management course. Go ahead and enroll. It'll help you kind of get past these barriers you might be facing in making that massive, important change to shape a better future. So Rob Rob Bogue, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Rob's unique approach to change management leverages his significant knowledge of traditional approaches along with groundbreaking new perspectives. This helps organizations evolve their current approaches in a way that helps them succeed in the midst of rapid change, while keeping in mind the critical importance of preventing and addressing employee burnout. This is a particularly important time to address change in an effective way. We can't ignore the issues caused by rapid change and significant disruption within organizations and within society today. 
If the pandemic weren't enough, we also find ourselves needing to address public discourse, political division, and the responsible exchange and dissemination of information. It is stressful during turbulent times. Many choose to look away, to focus on the world closest to them, to find progress with micro-opportunities to achieve small wins. While this can be a short-term approach, I believe we must challenge ourselves to not look away, to experience and understand what is happening around us. This is a turning point. History is unfolding before our eyes, and it is a time where change for the better is desperately needed. So, consider the changes necessary to achieve your goals, the goals of your organization, or those that make our world a better place. Address those changes mindfully, consider their impact, and work with others to shape a better future. And, most of all, believe that you can do it, understand your purpose, and consider the difference you can make. This will help you achieve your goals while helping you avoid burnout in the process. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Robert Bogue's Six Keys to Confident Change Management, visit ConfidentChangeManagement.com. That's ConfidentChangeManagement.com. You can also learn more about how to extinguish burnout at ExtinguishBurnout.com. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at HumansNowAndThen.com. Thank you for listening.